Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, how will you know if your big contract will work how it's supposed to? Acceleration of delivery with the app modernization, how fast they got through that process, how much cost avoidance was achieved because they accelerated process to delivery, customer and user experience. Those three areas are huge when you're building out success. The Defense Department's supply chain risk management problem isn't having enough guidance. There's a lot out there that says, DOD and other agencies, you shall do this to protect and secure and manage the risk of supply chains. But nobody knows what that means or how to do it. And there's no real standard way, especially of leveraging data and technology to get after that problem. And the plan ahead for the intelligence community of tomorrow. As we move forward, we're looking at things like outside the beltway, which is a a, a euphemism for how do we spread facilities where intelligence professionals that don't have to be co-located at the center, uh, where they can do their work uh, in a distributed environment. It's Thursday, May 12th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Guidance on four primary workforce priorities is out from the Office of Personnel Management. A memo from Associate Director of Employee Services at OPM, Rob Shriver, says agencies must choose two of the four to support for the next four years. The four priorities include tech solutions to support the human capital community, succession planning techniques, employee experience, and agile organizational skills. A rotation program is coming for agency cyber personnel. The Federal Rotational Cyber Workforce Program Act allows employees to move from agency to agency during their time in government. The bill passed both chambers of Congress. The White House says President Biden will sign it soon. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Next Friday is the deadline for getting votes in for the best bosses in federal IT. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Government Accountability Office will decide by sometime in August the fate of the latest protests to the CIO SP4 contract from NITAC. That vehicle isn't the only one, though, that's struggling to get off the ground right now. Keith Nakasone is federal senior strategist at VMware. He's former deputy assistant commissioner for acquisition in the office of the IT category at the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Keith, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Let's take a clean sheet to this rather than drilling down on one particular one. Let's start one from scratch. What do we want to do as a community, both industry and government, to build an acquisition vehicle that allows for innovation, that meets the needs of an agency today and two, three, five years from now, and also makes it easy for industry to get on it and move off of it if it needs to at some point, and makes it easy for industry to get on later if it needs to? Or maybe I'm thinking about it much too ambitiously, Keith. Welcome. (laughs) I, thanks for having me. Francis, no, you're absolutely right. Sometimes when we um, get in the mindset of building these large government-wide acquisition contracts and, and you know you have the private and public engagement, it's that collaboration up front and, and doing that spirit and the intent of delivering capability to solve mission requirements, right? What is the business challenges and outcomes that the agencies are trying to solve? So sometimes we build these massive procurement vehicles to try to cover the entire world. 
What, what we have to do is figure out what is what do we need to do if we're building a small business government-wide acquisition contract, we need to work together on how we can deliver that capability, right? Not be so prescriptive and try to lock things down from the very beginning. We have to have that flexibility and agility built into the model where you have open seasons. So if you don't qualify up front in the very beginning, you have these open season uh, timeframes where you're going to allow people in as they develop their, their subject matter expertise, build out their portfolio, et cetera, right? So it's keeping that balance, but also not losing control of what the intent of the contract was for. And so if, if we try to cover the globe, there's no way to do that, right? I love the term open season, and I'm not sure I've heard that used in terms of a government-wide acquisition contract before. That's a fascinating concept because everybody understands what that is. Everybody's dealt with an open season in their health insurance program or something. And so how would that work? How can you, how do you determine Okay, so let's say we do it like health insurance. It's mostly in November, and we're going to open it up for a month. It's a five-year contract, and every November, we're going to open it up for 30 days or 60 days or whatever makes sense. How would we do the mechanics of that, Keith, in each open season period? How do we determine who's eligible and all of that stuff? Right, so when we have the, the capabilities set up front, and you have the self-scoring sheets, uh, the self-scoring evaluation sheets right up front, and you create those open seasons, they already know the expectation. So they know what they have to achieve. So if you're working towards that and the model stays consistent throughout the life cycle of, of the procurement, then you would have a consistent way and past precedence of opening that season either on an annual or biannual basis to say, how are we going to inject new technologies over time? So if we stay at the capabilities level, rather than trying to be 100% prescriptive with requirements, it allows that flexibility to move with technology, right? If, if you lock everything down in the front, you're gonna land up into protests all the time. So if you keep yourself flexible, agile, and uh, being able to allow people to ramp on through open seasons, you can avoid a whole lot of uh, uh, issues moving forward with these large government-wide acquisition contracts. Does anything like that exist now? Because I'm not sure I've heard of anything like that in any of these vehicles that we're, we've talked about in, you know, in the last couple of years or whatever. It, it, it's, it's in a, dis, uh, a lot of this is happening now with the discussions that are going on but it's really coming together with the at the table with private and public engagements to share transparency during that market research period. How do I build that with that ramp-on capability to satisfy the requirements move, uh, and capabilities moving forward? Because there's no way to build, um, the, as we know, technology moves every three to six months, right? And the acquisition life cycle takes 18 to 24 months with these large government-wide acquisition contracts. Well, if you build it with flexibility in place, then you'll be able to continuously, uh, through open seasons, have that ability to ramp on new technology, new 
vendors moving forward. Yeah. And that seems to me that would take away the biggest, well, maybe not take away, but it would at least decelerate the biggest issue that's driving the protest issue. And that is if this is a five or a 10 year contract and I don't make it on, I'm dead in the water. I'm, I'm out of luck for five or 10 years. But if I know I have the potential to get on it next year, it's not great, but at least I'm only out of the cycle potentially for a year and not for the entire life of the deal. Absolutely. The other element of this that I think is important is simplicity. I read some of the protests and and the decisions then of some of these, and I, I'm certainly not an expert to the extent that you're an expert, but I know a little bit about this stuff, and it still was just so deep, so dense. Um, what what do you think the possibility of this idea, this open season idea, would do? to uh, increase the simplicity of some of these? Is there a contributing factor there, do you think? Sure. So the self-scoring sheets are supposed, and the evaluation criteria was supposed to help with that process, right? Because you know things right up front, but it's how you build out those um, self-scoring sheets, right? If you make it so complex, you're going to run into difficulty. If you make it simple where you meet the technical baseline, the management baseline, the past performance, and with the spirit of intent of delivering capabilities, you'll be able to navigate that process with some transparency. If you try to complicate the process where you try to inject hundred like fixed requirements, fixed certifications, et cetera, you're going to run into more issues because every company will want to try to hit the maximum points in order to get on board, right? But we all know that there's different levels and maturity with every company. So you have to figure out where and what area you want to be. So we talked about these, what we call specialty pools, IT pools, such as delivery of multi-cloud, delivery of artificial intelligence and machine learning and other technologies. If you have that specialty areas, and the and you created these pools, you would be able to isolate down the the not only the capabilities of a company, but the delivery of those certain capabilities as well. How do we measure success? We talk in this program a lot about uh, going for outcomes rather than outputs. We don't want to just see raw numbers. What does the desired outcome metric look like as we try to make this? transformation that we're discussing here? Love that question because we come right back to what is the business outcomes, right? How do we identify success? I'll give you um, a perfect example. Uh, We've been working with uh, the government on the software factories. So what does success look like? Acceleration of delivery of app modernization, how fast it got through that process, how much cost avoidance was achieved because they accelerated the process to delivery, customer, and user experience. Those three areas are huge when you're building out success. And when you look at that capability through an acquisition lifecycle, as well as the uh, program side of the house, if you deliver capabilities that the user and customers are asking for, that is your success story. Right. If you achieve um, efficiencies and effective effectiveness through that process, you've achieved success. Right. And so if we look at these requirements and we we um, 
look at how we change the delivery models as well as the procurement models, you're going to see in a, a definitely uh, you're going to see this shift in in the in the success rate. So basically, the the rule the the measure for success is are the customer agencies that use this vehicle finding the capabilities they want in the area in which this contract was supposed to deliver capabilities. It's not how many vendors we got on. It's not how, it, none of that's the, it's not that doesn't matter, but that's not the number one priority. Number one priority is our agencies finding the capabilities that they need, right? Absolutely. And, and we see that today with, as we migrate away from on-prem type of environments to this hybrid environment. It, and because of, what we learned through the pandemic, this is going to be even more crucial, right? How are your systems and your infrastructure able to keep up with um, supporting the customers and the taxpayers, as well as the people who are behind using the systems? Great insight as always, Keith. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You can read more about some of the protests Keith and I talked about there in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Never trust always verifies the essence of zero trust. If you want to secure your organization, you need to verify more than just users. You also need to secure devices. Tanium can help you gain clarity and control across all endpoints to secure your perimeter. Visit Tanium.com federal to learn more. The next generation of the Pentagon's cyber supply chain risk management will get a test soon. The chief of implementation policy in the office of the chief information officer at the Defense Department, Stacey Buschanek, says tabletop exercises will start in late June or early July for the cybersecurity maturity model certification. Tara Murphy Doherty is chief executive officer of Govini. She's former chief of staff for global strategic affairs in the office of the secretary of defense. Tara, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. You wrote recently that the way that it stands now, CMMC is not going to cut it. What do you mean by that, Tara? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Really glad to join. Uh, well, first of all, I think that Ms. Boschanek has actually taken a significant leap forward with CMMC 2.0. And most importantly, perhaps, the fact that she's out at these events like AFSIA, where she made those remarks, is really important because one of the things that has held CMMC back significantly in terms of industry being willing to adopt it is, frankly, a total lack of understanding of what is entailed. And so things like tabletop exercises, things like Project Spectrum uh, are going to help significantly in terms of increasing outreach and therefore increasing understanding. That said, CMMC 2.0 from an implementation perspective, according to the Department of Defense, is still at least 18 months out from implementation. And that's probably my most important concern. When you look at not just solar winds and colonial pipeline, but even more recent events such as Log4j and the vulnerability and hack that was discovered there, it's evident that the department is extremely exposed on this front, that industry has a really important role to play, and that software supply chains also need to be secured. How, how much of that messaging, though, do you think is on the department and how much of it is on industry to receive it and do something with it? Because I will just, just from my anecdotal perspective, 
Carlton Johnson, former chair of the CMMC board, um, Matthew Travis, uh, other officials with CMMC have been talking about this for a long time. I mean, back when I was still on the television show, those folks were coming on the show. They were in other media outlets talking about this is coming. This is what it means. And you're right. I have the perception, too, that it's not printing with industry. But I wonder where that disconnect might have come from and how to fix it. That's a great point. And the dynamic where the enforcement mechanism is self-certification as it is for CMMC and CMMC 2.0, as it is for the lower levels of uh, security, is very, very unlikely to be successful, frankly. And the reason is because although industry takes cybersecurity seriously, the onus or the what makes it onerous is when you start to add on the reporting requirements to DOD. I don't think there are any companies working with defense that are cavalier about the security of their networks. I think that they are already part of an incredibly burdensome procurement system and project management system, and that the continual addition of new reporting requirements, validation, accreditation processes, third-party assessments is where you really start to break down the model of collaboration with the industrial base in terms of what is reasonable, not just for traditional small businesses, but particularly as DOD tries to attract new entrants to the market, many of whom are venture capital backed and are not interested in long onerous processes. So that really raises the question of if you're going to ask these businesses to do this, not just take it seriously, but report to DOD and accredit the systems, well, then what's the incentive and what's the enforcement mechanism? There's been a lot of talk recently, including in the recently released NIST cybersecurity guidance that just came out about software bills of material. And this is a perfect example of something that's very reasonable. S-bombs, as they're known in industry, are uh, not new. And frankly, in terms of generating an S-bomb for a modern software company, that's not a tough ask. But then what do you do with those S-bombs? Are they going to be, you know, will the government just expect that industries just generating these for free and providing them? How does all of that get handled? And I think those questions have yet to be answered. All right. Spell that acronym out for me, because when you sent the note yesterday and I saw it, the first thing I thought, of course, was that somebody said something on my show that started with an S word, an S that they couldn't say. <laughs> so define that acronym for me, because I hadn't seen it before. Sure. So a software bill of materials is basically a receipt or accounting of the different software components that exist within the technology stack of any kind of software product. And it not only identifies the components, but it actually identifies how those different components relate to each other or are connected. There's a really important aspect of what gets surfaced in a software bill of materials, and that is the open source code or open source software that is incorporated into that technology. There's nothing inherently bad about open source software. In fact, quite the opposite. Some of the best in class industry standard technologies that are core components of advanced software systems are based on open source code or completely leverage open source products. 
But of course, for the national security community and indeed the broader federal government, there's still a lower level of risk tolerance and one that becomes incredibly important in the context of open source code, which by its very nature means it is open to the public, not just for use and dissemination, but potentially also for modification. So you use the term there that gets us back to the beginning of the conversation. When you talk about risk tolerance, the the, the discussion revolt that we're having and that the broader community is having revolves around supply chain risk management. And you also referenced incentives and enforcement for industry. How do we connect all of those things together in a policymaking way that gets us where we really want to be, which is not I comply with CMMC level whatever, but it's that I can be confident and the department can be confident, whether it's DOD or a civilian agency, because GSA is going to build this into some of their contracting vehicles. I can be confident and the agency I'm serving can be confident that their information is secure with me and my information is secure when they use it. Absolutely. There needs to be prioritization. DOD has yet to be successful at boiling the ocean in anything, and understandably so, given just how large an enterprise it is. So where do you begin? I actually think before you figure out where do you begin on applying solutions, you have to go back or go upstream one more level, which is let's define the problem. And if we get singular agreement on not just what the symptoms of these vulnerabilities are, but what is the problem, then that can drive the level of risk that DOD and other agencies are willing to accept. For the Department of Defense, maybe it begins with separating software that exists in weapon systems and platforms from software that exists in business systems, from software that exists in your toaster or your smart fridge. You know, there is software in everything at this point. So we shouldn't expect that we need to address everything, address everything right away. And certainly that is very similar to the thinking that has prevailed in the cybersecurity community as well. Is there a model somewhere in the private sector? Maybe a lot of people talk about the financial services industry. Is there a model somewhere in the world that the department could use or is this is it really different because of the mission of the department you know i think one of the biggest lessons that the department should learn from the private sector is the importance of training and educating its workforce and uh, that's something that dod does really well in a military context of course Uh, you know just to connect this conversation to something else that's happening in the world. I think looking at what has played out in uh, the very sad war in Ukraine has been evidence of just how unprofessional Russian military forces are and a reminder of how frankly, exceptional the American military is in terms of professionalism and competence. We do things like train our forces extremely well. We don't always apply that across the board, particularly in areas like these. So Gavini has actually just launched a certification program for supply chain risk management professionals. It's a one week long training course And it is designed to fill exactly this gap in training and education for the workforce in an area where there are innumerable statutory regulations, 
uh, various policy requirements. There's a lot out there that says DOD and other agencies, you shall do this to protect and secure and manage the risk of supply chains. But nobody knows what that means or how to do it. And there's no real standard way, especially of leveraging data and technology to get after that problem. So we're going to fill that gap. We're offering this, like I said, one week professional development course for all national security professionals, military civilian contractor to understand not just what what does supply chain risk management mean in both the hardware context, as well as the cybersecurity information communications technology software context, but also what are the best practices that are out there, including in the private sector? And importantly, how do you leverage data to solve this problem? Tara, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. Thanks for having me, Francis. Great to see you. You can read more about what's next for CMMC in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming tomorrow, it's a new edition of the FedScoop News Countdown, the three most important federal news stories of the week as selected by two experts from the federal community. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast. Adele Merritt is the new chief information officer of the intelligence community. One of her primary areas of responsibility is the IC's multi-cloud commercial cloud enterprise program. Michael Waschel is deputy CIO of the intelligence community. He tells my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell how the 18 organizations in the IC think about the cloud. To use a best athlete analogy, we can draw on the best components, the best capabilities, the most sophisticated capacity of each of the major cloud providers in the commercial cloud enterprise environment. And we can pick and choose and integrate that into a molecule that brings true warfighting advantage uh, to the United States. It really uh, helps us advance intelligence integration uh, in support of national security objectives. And how do you see public sector agencies taking more innovative approaches to cybersecurity and data production in 2022? Sir, the, uh, the president, President Biden, signed out Executive Order 14028, uh, which essentially has laid out a broad whole of government approach to cyber hygiene and cybersecurity. Uh, it was a valuable uh, update of that which was always preoccupied us in the intelligence community, data security being kind of a core tenet of what we do. Uh, General Paul Nakasone, the national manager for national security systems of which the intelligence community nests under, uh, they issued National Security Memorandum Number 8, which essentially decomposed that high-level executive order into over 70 different tasks and subtasks and derived tasks that greatly, uh, if we did uh, cybersecurity with a sledgehammer in the past, we're doing it with a scalpel today. We're carefully understanding the nuances of vulnerabilities. We're carefully understanding where adversaries have shown a, an inclination to uh, capitalize on vulnerabilities or otherwise um, attack us or threaten our critical infrastructure. And then we've taken a very uh, sophisticated approach to how do we identify what it is we need to protect? How do we understand deeply the inventory of our national security systems? And then what are the best possible solution sets 
to bring to bear on these problems? How do we patch? How do we remedy? How do we mitigate? How do we contingency plan? How do we do the things that are necessary to protect this infrastructure to the highest possible degree at the lowest possible cost in the quickest possible time? And how do you see digital workforce enablement helping agencies improve how they attract re and retain skilled employees? Sir, what we've found is that technical people want to do technical things and managers want to manage. If you force fit a technical person into a managerial job, you get a suboptimal outcome. If you force fit a manager into a technical job, you probably don't get the best possible outcome either. So the best way we can do this is to parse the work and with these new multi-cloud operations that are being brought to bear, the workloads that are being uh, taken from legacy capability, refactored and moved into cloud environments, those are sophisticated technical applications that require a whole new set of skills uh, that this workforce is embracing. They're understanding agile systems and software development. They're understanding scrum masters. They're understanding how quickly to understand user requirements and to turn that into rapid prototyping and capabilities that you can quickly get into the hands of users and elicit feedback to understand, did I meet your need or did I miss it? Those things, that's bread and butter to a technical community that really likes that. From a management perspective, the idea of uh, these cloud contracts, which are omnibus in nature, uh, managers then have the capacity to pick and choose among those cloud providers to look for the best business uh, outcome uh, from an operational perspective, but then also the best pricing and enterprise license agreements and, and big discounts that can be brought to bear. And therefore, they meet their needs to be able to meet user requirements in the most cost-effective fashion possible. So that's a, that's a happy place for technical people and for managers. That's great. So as we close out, let's talk briefly about the pandemic and what comes next. Agencies had to move rapidly to acquire novel IT solutions during the pandemic. And how do you see those efforts impacting longer term acquisition reforms? Sir, if you'd asked me five years ago, could both the operational intelligence world, the collection analysis and production environment, the people that do the business that derive the national advantage that intelligence brings, and the business applications, the support activities, the HR, the personnel, the business and financial management, the facilities management, if you were to say to me, could all those things exist outside of a special compartmented information facility, a SCIF, or could we do that work outside of the realm of a classified network? I would have told you no, because that's completely going against the grain of everything that, that I was taught as a youngster coming up for many, many years, and I've been around, as you can see, for quite a while. At the end of the day, uh, that separation of substantive intelligence and support functions had to be broken apart because at the, uh, you know, the pandemic showed us that, hey, look, we can't bring all the people into the office. We've got to find a way to work from home. We've got to find a way to accommodate that which can be accommodated without putting national security and intelligence equities at risk. So the business functions lent themselves to taking some risk. And then we got you know, amazing partnerships. Microsoft Teams, O365, uh, many of the other applications that Zoom and, and others that allowed us to interact virtually. Uh, that's not going away. 
It's hard to put a big dog back on the porch and this workplace and this workforce says, I like working at home. I like to have a little bit of work-life balance and I can do my job most effectively. Uh, I don't have to be policed. I'm engaged, I'm leaning forward, I'm proactive. You can trust me to do the work you need me to do uh, in an unclassified domain. I will be sensitive to that which I need to be sensitive to, but I can deliver outcomes. And so as we move forward, we're looking at things like outside the beltway, which is a, a, a euphemism for how do we spread uh, facilities where intelligence professionals that don't have to be co-located at the center, uh, where they can do their work uh, in a distributed environment. Using O365 from Microsoft and other uh, capabilities too going forward, uh, it's just gonna get more effective and easier to do this business from an unclassified uh, perspective. I don't think we're ever going back, Mr. Mitchell. Michael Washell, the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Intelligence Community with my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to watch the whole conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, Leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow afternoon. The Fed Scoop News Countdown is here to launch your weekend. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. <laughs>